Hello there and you're very welcome to the programme. Well, coming up in the next hour, from Olympic boxing gold to tackling cyber crime with the White House to legendary activism, I'll be chatting with the three remarkable women being awarded the Freedom of Dublin next weekend, Kelly Harrington, Professor Mary Aiken and Alva Smith. Also this morning, visiting us from the Aran Islands, we'll have great music and wonderful chat from one of Ireland's most exciting emerging artists, Porrick Jack. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and anything featured on the show. You can text us to 51551. You can email Miriam at rt.ie or you can tweet at Miriam O'Callaghan. But first this morning, next Saturday, the highest honour in our capital city, the Freedom of Dublin, will be awarded to three extraordinary women in Irish life. Olympic boxing gold medalist Kelly Harrington will be honoured alongside Alva Smith for her work in human rights, social justice and academia and Professor Mary Aiken for her work in cyber psychology, online safety and security. In a short while, I'll be chatting with Kelly Harrington and Professor Mary Aiken, but before that Alva Smith. Good morning and congratulations. Oh, thank you, Miriam. It's lovely to be here with you. I'm delighted to have you. I, I've been lucky to interview you down the years for different <laughs> campaigns you've been involved in. Mm-hmm. But I feel this morning I'll get to know about you, the person behind it all. Yeah. First of all, it's great after only five women and 83 men. Is that an honour? It is absolutely extraordinary. It's also absolutely brilliant and full marks to our lovely Lord Mayor, Alison Gilliland, for thinking, oh, we need to correct that in balance. So let's have a woman. No, let's rethink that. Let's have two. No, let's rethink that again. Let's have three women at once. And I think it's in a way a real stroke of genius because it is making the point so importantly and significantly that the contributions that women make are many, varied, diverse, excellent, brilliant and have for far too long been ignored. So it's a real honour for me to be sharing this freedom of the city with a wonderful young woman, Kelly Harrington, who has done so much for women and sports and our sense of getting out there and the equally brilliant in a totally different field, Mary Aiken, who is so distinguished and works on a global field, absolutely cutting edge stuff. So I feel personally very honoured. I'm also quite honestly you know, just on a really personal level, incredibly thrilled. I would never have thought as a younger woman that, you know, an activist, a campaigner would be honoured in this way in our city. Listen, you mentioned there, Alva, as a young woman. Go right back. Where did you grow up? Tell me about your family. Oh, well, I grew up in Rathmines and my father was a butcher in Rathmines. So you probably know that one of the perks of this freedom is that you get to graze your sheep. People (laughs) have been trying to give me advice on this and I've been saying, excuse me, just to hold hold on a minute there. I know far more about sheep (laughs) than most urban girls and boys know. Um, So my father was a butcher I had a shop in Rathmines and my mother raised the six children of whom I am um, the eldest and she worked really very, very hard at doing that. And I went to school then up in Terenure, well, really Temple Oak in Our Lady's School, where I had some absolutely fabulous nuns. And people are always surprised, unfairly, I think, uh, if you say that in Ireland. But they really were wonderful. They were the religious of Christian education. And they had just come over from from England at the request, I think, of the Archbishop. And they, they, they just hadn't a clue about Ireland and Catholicism in Ireland. And 
they just didn't know how it worked. So they didn't understand that you didn't raise girls to ask questions and to be really active. And they did teach us to ask questions. They taught us to be really inquiring and curious. And when I, I was quite quite bold. I was really kind of like a ringleader child at school. And when you would be bold, they, they you would get a bit of a punishment. Not very much, but they would also kind of laugh at you. And you got the impression that they were sort of admiring because they were in their own way. They were leaders, those women. And they were kind of saying to us, if you get out there and do something, if you take the initiative, that this is something we'll applaud. Now, they never made me a prefect or a head girl. They weren't that foolish. But <laughs> at the same time, you, I, I always felt accepted as somebody who was going to stand up and ask questions and stamp my foot. And that was the same at home, if something I thought was wrong or unfair. And you went to college then, but your 20s were tricky enough, weren't they? You, you oh, got Mary, very ill. Oh, my 20s were an absolute write-off. People talk about their wonderful 20s. Mine were spent basically in and out of St. Patrick's Psychiatric Hospital. I got married very, very briefly in my mid twenty. Well, I think it was about 24 uh, just for six months and then became very ill, not because I got married, but because I had very severe anorexia and depression. And, you know, you can make sense of everything as you go along in life in retrospect. But I do think that for me, I was champing at the bit. I needed more. I was had been educated and raised to be a really high achiever. Uh, parents very keen for me to have education mm. and go to college. I was the first girl in a large extended family to do that, you know, go out and get a job. But at the same time, there were all those traditional requirements and expectations of young women and women to get married, settle down, have children, give up your job. When I did get married, UCD tried to put me on part-time because you still couldn't work mm. as a full-time person in the public service in Ireland at that time. Now, they didn't succeed. Um, I was absolutely having none of that. Uh, unfortunately, the law was changed very shortly afterwards anyway. But I think that all of that and trying to work out how did you be a woman? How did you be yourself? How could you be? And I think that was that was a very difficult time for women of my generation, you know, who mm. who were raised to think wide, to see horizons and to see beyond the horizons and who were restrained, restricted, limited, kept back by what was a very authoritarian society. I know you know this inside out, but living it as a young woman was mm. too much for me. And my system just kind of, my system rebelled against it. And I spent about five, six years in and out of St. Pat's where they were very good to me. But of course, in those days, the treatment was very different than it would be now. Um, managed to hold on to my job. I'd got a job in UCD, which I was very proud of. Uh, and I don't know how. I think actually they were good to me at that time. Mm. But it was a very difficult time. Very luckily, I have not experienced serious depression, I think just once in my life after that, at the end of my 30s. And since then, I've really been able to manage whatever has come along. And you get to a stage in your life where you say to yourself, well, oh gosh, you know, there's no point in being depressed. Life is just like this. 
too short. Get on with it. Enjoy what you can. How do you think you got better? Obviously, St. Pat's yeah. helped you, but you said there were different treatments. What do you think helped you recover? Because I'm conscious there could be one person listening this morning, Alva, yes. who's going through depression or anorexia and, and you give them hope because you went on and you got better. Yes. Well, my family were very good to me and my friends and my employer. So that that kind of support really helps. But I always say that, you know, the women's movement really saved me because I started reading around about maybe, well, actually it was the early 70s I began learning about and hearing about the women's movement and reading and understanding that being a woman was complicated and that there was a system there that was out to make sure that I didn't rise above and get my head above the parapet and that was you know, really intent on keeping me in a very limited space. And as I understood that better, it really helped me to to deal with some of the problems, I suppose, to articulate them. That's, I think, what I'm saying. I began to identify what was at that time the problem of womanhood, which I think is different now. Mm. I think there are still lots of problems, mm. but they're different And I began to understand better how I could be an independent person uh, and also became much more interested, obviously, and involved in feminism and eventually then in the women's movement. And you went, obviously, through a number of seismic events that today are not that big a deal, but you got divorced at a time in Ireland when hardly anyone got divorced. You then had a child out of wedlock. Let me stop you straight away. (laughs) I mean, I couldn't get divorced. Of course. I couldn't get divorced of until course. 1995. So I fought the divorce referendum in 86 and it was the only time in my life I thought I'm going to leave this country because it is just too much. We'd had the defeat, you know, of the Eighth Amendment uh, scenario in 83, which was absolutely ghastly. We then sailed into this divorce referendum and the people said, oh, no, nobody's getting divorced in this country. They're going to stick in these awful marriages. I had been married way back in something like, I don't know, it was 72 or 73 or something. And not only me, but also the, the poor hapless man to whom I'd been married was also stuck with that situation. So, you know, there was an awful lot to fight for. And in 86, I do remember thinking, I have to leave because I can't take this anymore. And then some kind of good sense kicked in. First of all, because I actually genuinely, not just saying it, but I genuinely do like living in Dublin and I like living in Ireland. I like where I live. Mm. For all that's maybe wrong with it and that we have to change, I love it. And I thought, no, I'm I'm going to stay. I'm going to stick here, going to stick around. And my daughter, of course, was here as well. And I thought that was important. But it's true that, you know, all along that period, I as soon as I came out of hospital, really, and then um, quite quite quickly had my daughter by uh, her Mm. father. Obviously, I wasn't married to him. These were all difficult things to do in Ireland. Ireland. And then... And then you came out as a lesbian. So, hello, you did three. You had a broken marriage, you had a child out of wedlock and you said, hey, I'm gay. Like, you were brave. Well, I said I was lesbian. And the problem with the word lesbian, I think, you know, that in a way, I've always been doing things that you couldn't say the words for in Ireland. So nobody would say the word lesbian. A very good example. I remember sitting here, probably in this very studio, and they said to me, how do you want to be introduced? And I said, well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm an academic. Years ago now. Ye- oh, oh, years yeah, ago. Yeah. Oh, oh, Miriam, of course, years Go ago. On. I'm talking way back in probably, probably the 80s. Early, early-ish 80s. Yeah. And they were introducing me and I said, yeah, and I'm a lesbian activist. 
and it came across um, she, she is she is an academic. <laughs> Full stop. You know, you, I mean, I don't know. It certainly wasn't. Maybe it was the word activist combined with lesbian. But just people couldn't, didn't, didn't Mention, use that say word. The word. So, you know, in a way you were, you know, it was very difficult for my family. How difficult Well, was I it? mean, I really couldn't tell my, my father was dead at that point, but I couldn't tell my mother uh, really in so many words. And I think my family gradually came to terms with it and they're all absolutely fabulous, mm. of course, now. I mean, and over the years and really were always very good to me. But in work, it was very difficult. And I remember a young woman coming to me in the early 90s and saying, I, I want to come out as lesbian. And my, I kind of, I regret it in a way, my saying to her, I don't think I would if I were you, unless you are absolutely sure that you can kind of take the heat. Okay. Um but it made me think I set up women's studies around 1990 that we had to do something to ensure that whoever and whatever women were, that that would actually be all right. Of course, Avi, you've been involved in so many high profile campaigns over the years, from the women's liberation movement to repeal of the eighth to marriage equality. Well, campaigns, campaigns also have a life of their own. So I think the people um, in this country, what we've discovered, I mean, I wasn't used to winning. That's for absolutely sure. So it's still, I mean, it is still an amazement to me that we got through two really very big referendum campaigns. And that was, you know, the marriage equality with people like Gronia Healy and Brian Sheehan and all those who were really magnificent. And then that we got through one that was, actually probably even more difficult that we got through to have abortion legislation. And I do feel, I feel immensely proud that I have been able to be part of all of that and to contribute to it. And it touches me more than I can say when young women stop me in the street or something and just say thank you. I I, I still feel emotional <laughs> when I think about that. You know, it's so important. Oh. Two final questions. Is there a highlight from your long campaigning activist career? Is there a moment where you thought this is my best moment of all of this? I have to say that on the morning of the count of for the repeal referendum, I got um, a video message from my two grandchildren, Martha and Laurie in London. And Martha at that stage, she's nine now. So she was what, about five and a half or six mm. or something. And she sat there and Laurie was eating his toast beside her and she said, we're very proud of you, Granny. We hear you're a rebel, Granny. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt so proud of that because I thought it is precisely for my daughter and my granddaughter and for all our daughters and all our granddaughters and indeed for our sons and grandsons that we fight these fights to make a world that is more livable, that is more decent and respectful, in which people can kind of flourish and enjoy themselves, enjoy their lives a bit more. So next Saturday, when you take to the stage in the Mansion House to receive the freedom of Dublin City in recognition of your work, what will that moment be like? Amazing, just brilliant, extraordinary. And I will probably cry and I am thrilled to be doing it with two such wonderful women as Kelly and Mary. Just beyond words, really, Miriam. Well, Alva Smith, so well deserved. And thanks so much for chatting to me this morning. Enjoy yourself next Saturday. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1. Well, as I said earlier, next Saturday, the highest honour in our capital city, the Freedom of Dublin, is going to be awarded to three extraordinary women in Irish life. 
Olympic boxing gold medalist Kelly Harrington will be honoured alongside Alva Smith, who we just spoke to her earlier in the programme, and Professor Mary Aiken will also receive the award for her work in cyber psychology, online safety and security. Good morning, Mary Aiken. Morning, Mary. What does it mean to you, first of all, to get this award next Saturday? Well, to be honest, I was shocked <laughs> and surprised in a very pleasant way. But it's not about me. It's about the research, the work that I do. It's about creating a safer and more secure cyberspace. So I'm thrilled that attention has been given to the work. And earlier I was chatting to Alva a lot about her life and her upbringing. But I know given the nature of the work that you do, that you have to be extremely cautious about what you say. I'm very careful about separating my professional and private life and I compartmentalise. I mean, I work frontline with organisations like Interpol and Europol. So naturally, I'm cautious. How did you get involved in this area? Remind me. I first studied psychology back in the day and then I worked for a while in marketing and advertising and had a successful career there. And I came across artificial intelligence in the form of chatbots in the 90s in Los Angeles when I was working in marketing in L.A. And I thought this is captivating. And this was pre the Internet as we know it now, pre social media, no MySpace, Facebook, Instagram, nothing. And I thought this is compelling technology. And I rushed back to my professors of psychology and said, I've seen the future and it's cyber. And they said, cyber hocus pocus, humans will never communicate like that. And here we are. But it started something where I thought, you know, nothing in my study of psychology to date equips me to understand this. And I decided to go back to requalify. And I did a master's of science in cyber psychology. And then I did a full PhD in forensic cyber psychology, which is the study of criminal, deviant and abnormal behavior online. And I am kept pretty busy. There's a nice story, isn't there, about when you worked, I think, in marketing yes. for Kellogg's and you were walking around a supermarket. Yes. Oh, yes. Can yes. Check- With, I, was, I was walking around. The kids were quite young and I was walking around a supermarket and I would fly forward and back and overseas. And I conceptualised um, campaigns, brand campaigns. In fact, I'm the named inventor on a number of patents in that sector. And effectively, we were in the supermarket and a couple of my packs with the promotions on it were there. So I was saying to the children, oh, this is one mummy made and this is what. And I could see this other woman pushing her trolley and giving me a very sad <laughs> look as if to say, yes, sure, mummy did that. <laughs> <laughs> but you had. But I had. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's it, it was funny. You work now very closely in the fight against cybercrime with mm-hmm. Interpol and Europol. It's something that has increased hugely, isn't it, with the pandemic? Yes, we saw that. We saw an exponential increase in cybercrime. And really what it does is it points to the agility and adaptability of cybercriminals. And also it points to what the World Health Organization has described as the infodemic. So the infodemic was just too much information. And what that did, you know, every clickbait headline was people are dying, hospital number. It, it caused this surge of anxiety in general population. What does that do? It lowers human resilience because people became very anxious. And so cyber criminals were able to create false URLs and bait people into clicking on these. And that 
the pandemic and the anxiety associated with the pandemic became an attack vector for cyber criminals. So this is the area that I work in. It's a sort of frontline prediction of evolving trends and actually looking at how we can stage interventions. I'm leading an EU project at the moment. It's the largest research project in the area, which is looking at human and technical drivers of cybercrime. So basically technical being the malware, the exploits, and human being the psychological drivers as to why people would engage in this activity, particularly young people. We're seeing an increasing amount of young people being drawn into cybercriminal activity. And I suppose, speaking of the pandemic, isn't there a funny story? You were working from home like many people (laughs) and preparing for a briefing call with the White House (laughs) when you had not had a knock at the door. That's true. Uh, Like everybody, I was I was working from home and it was I was principal investigator on a research report into online safety technology or what we describe as safety tech. And it was published in the US in January. And then in February, the White House uh, contacted me and said, um, we'd like you to do a briefing. And we were just coming out of the end of the pandemic. And so I set everything up and effectively had all my phones turned off, everything ready to go. And then the buzzer and the gate went and it was quarter to six and I was on at six o'clock. And the person said, I'm from the gas board. There's a gas leak. And I said, oh, for heaven's sake. So I opened the gate that came down the driveway. I rushed out. I said, the gas tanks are over there. Do whatever you want. And he said, but it's a gas leak. And I said, but I don't care. <laughs> I said, um, and I think when people say gas leak, you know, you're supposed to drop everything. And I said to him, look, I'm briefing the White House in four minutes. And again, I got that same sympathetic look that my children had given me <laughs> previously, where he nodded and said, yes, I'm sure you are talking to the White House. <laughs> and I'm sure that poor man went home and said, you would not believe the crazy woman I met on the side of a hill who thought she was talking to the White House. But I went in, I did the briefing, the gas leak was dealt with, but yeah. I suppose one of the biggest worries is protecting our children online, you know, with the rise in cyberbullying, sexting, grooming all putting them at risk. Protection of young people online, it's your biggest passion, I think, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And the point is we've had, you know, 40, 50 years of cybersecurity. Cybersecurity protects your data, your systems, your networks. It does not protect what it is to be human online. And we have this new evolving area, which is called online safety technology, safety tech, and that focuses on humans online. And I'm so excited about this area. I work very closely with the UK government. There's an online safety bill coming through. I'm working with the Irish government. There's another safety bill coming through. The US, we're seeing huge movement in this area. I'm working closely in the US, EU level. And I really think, and you know, I've been in here talking to you about this on and off over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. But I really, for the first time, think the tide is turning. And when I look at women like Alva and Kelly, and I'm really honoured and delighted that the Lord Mayor has chosen this group, I think that we're very different. But I also think that we've got something in common. We're all women. We're all going toe-to-toe against our adversaries. We're all probably in some context punching above our weight. And the bottom line is we're all fighting for something. It's a great way of putting it. You feel passionately, don't you, about the digital age of consent. Why? Well, that was a a major campaign. And I started that campaign way back in 2017, because at the time the EU said that they would allow each European country to pick a digital age of consent. The lowest age was 13, the highest age uh, could be uh, 16. 
And effectively, our government at the time announced that the digital age of consent in Ireland was going to be 13. And because I work in a sort of a profiling area in forensics, I, it just seemed to me bizarre. All these groups came out and said, 13 is perfect. And I stopped and thought, well, no, it's not. So, for example, and I heard Alva talking earlier about an eating disorder. Well, say you had a little girl and she was very conscious of her body, some form of body dysmorphia. You might want to say at 13, I don't think you should be on Instagram. I don't think that's helpful, that image-based comparative platform. Mm. But if that law had come in at 13, that child would be able to say, I don't care what you think, mum or dad, I want to do this. So, yes, we want children to have rights online, but we also want parents involved in the decision making. So I started this campaign and everybody told me, you haven't got a chance. And I took a lot of flack. There were threats. I mean, it was awful. And everybody told me it would fail. And it ended up that on the day, we defeated the government and the digital age of Ireland, as consent in Ireland was set at 16. And what we see now, so many years later, look how the trend is reversing. Mm. We've had Francis Haugen coming out and saying that social media companies design into our psychological Achilles heel, our children's psychological Achilles heel. And we look at this and people say, well, it's just not possible. You know, how can you regulate social media? Of course you can. Of course there's a, there's a way of, of regulating. The problem is we've had self-verification online in terms of children verifying their own age. Yes, I'm 13 when they're eight and they're joining a platform. We've had self-report in terms of problems online and we've had self-regulation by these companies. So the era of self-regulation by these entities is over and we're going to see seismic changes going forward. And the point is, people say, well, how, can you, how could you have predicted that this would happen and something would go wrong? Well, let's look at meta. We're moving into the era of the metaverse. So that's a sort of social media in a virtual reality environment. Now, what we know about virtual reality is that it, it's a powerful, psychological, immersive environment. In other words, when you put the headset on and you get into this virtual reality world, it feels real. So fantastic. So we've got these social media companies focusing exclusively on the upside. If it is a powerful, psychologically immersive environment that enhances experience, then equally it will enhance cyberbullying. It will enhance harassment. There is no adult that is psychologically robust enough to have a couple of hundred people turning on them real time in mm. virtual reality. There is no child that can withstand that. And the companies need to do more, is what you're saying. I'm saying now this is what's going to happen. I'm saying now that cyberbullying will be exacerbated, that harassment will be exacerbated, that cyberstalking will be exacerbated on these platforms. And the challenge is, now that they know, what are they going to do about it? CSI Cyber, starring Patricia Arquette, is based on you. Yes. Remind <laughs> me about the call you got from Hollywood. How did that happen? I was doing um, another project for the White House, um, Network Science Project, and I got a call from Philip Morris. And the first meeting that I did in Hollywood on this was with Nina Taisler, who's the former head of entertainment at CBS. And it was a 15 minute meeting. It went on for two hours. But she stood up in the room and said, we want to make a primetime TV show based on you. And I issued the immortal words, can I get back to you? <laughs> 
I needed to go away and think about it. And I actually went to the people I worked with, a very wise person from a law enforcement and background, and I said, look, I'm very worried about this because I'm a scientist, I'm a behavioural scientist, I'm not in the entertainment industry. And what if I'm compromised through this process? Or what if the TV show comes out and it's anti the things that I stand for? What do I do? And he said, no, Mary, people accept that you can't control, but you can influence. And I thought, yeah. Back in 2013, I was able to influence the process. That showed aired in 170 countries worldwide. It was an incredible platform for dissemination to get the messages that I thought were important for parents, for caregivers, for grandparents, for anybody who's concerned about raising a child in an age of technology to actually understand what's happening and more importantly, what they can do about it. Finally, Mary, what would it mean for you next Saturday when you receive the Freedom of Dublin up on that podium? I think it's just such an honour. I'm thrilled. But as I said, I want to emphasise this is not about me. I'm more thrilled for my research and for online safety and security. Professor Mary Aiken, congratulations on all your great success and on winning and being awarded the Freedom of Dublin. Uh, thanks so much for being my guest this morning. Thanks, Miriam. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1. Well, now to the third of the three women on whom the highest honour in our capital city will be bestowed on Saturday next. Good morning, Kelly Harrington, and congratulations. Good morning, good morning. I hope you're keeping well and thanks very much. Are you delighted? It's a great honour, isn't it? Considering there's been so few women. Uh, I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm chuffed I am. I'm over the moon. What an honour to have. It's just amazing for, you know, like there is very few women and now me, along with the other two women, have been, we're getting the freedom of the city. That's just, it's just special. It's a special day. And you know, Kelly, you've won so many awards and medals now, but because you're such a Dubliner at heart, what does this mean for you and for your wider family and your parents? Do you know, like, it's people from all, like, people from all over the world get this award, you know, but, um, obviously not a lot of people, but, like, <laughs> only the chosen few, but, um, coming from Dublin and actually getting this award, all my family is absolutely buzzing. It's just something really, really special. And Kelly, to remind people, because people will forget, where you grew up, I mean, you're a Dubliner through and through, aren't you, Kelly? Tell me about where you grew up and your background there. Yeah, I'm a Dubliner. Uh, I'm from Dublin 1, the best part of Dublin, by the way. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, that's a part of, of who I am. It's a part of why I'm in this position, as in why I've got a, an Olympic gold medal, because I I don't know where, where I'm from comes great resilience and you know, that's, you need to have resilience to get to the top. And that's exactly what has helped me. You know, it's a great community, a, a, a great community spirit. And I'm absolutely so proud of where I come from. Really, really proud of everything that is the inner city. And I know you've also just been appointed, Kelly, a sports ambassador, along with Ellen Keane that other wonderful Paralympic gold medalist um, by Dublin City Council. What is that going to entail? So, yeah, so myself and Ellen, we've both partnered up with the Dublin City Council and it's basically, it's, it's a trying to promote the benefits of sport and physical activity in Dublin. But while we're also highlighting the importance of a wide and varied sporting infrastructure for a healthy and happy city, just right across the board, basically, the programme aims to help 
uh, to support and raise greater awareness to the work that's carried out by the Dublin City Council to increase and promote participation for active living, basically, and for your well-being for the people all over Dublin City, not just for the inner city, but all over Dublin City. Because, Kelly, sport really was your saviour in a way, wasn't it? I mean, you left school early and, and it was boxing, it was sport that really made you, wasn't it? That, that, you've hit the nail on the head there, yeah. It is like, like it was it was boxing that gave me discipline, basically. And I, I like when I got into a boxing club, I didn't want to let any of the coaches down by going off and doing anything bold, basically, outside of boxing. So... That helped me to build a, a lot of uh, discipline, and I mean, I didn't, I didn't get into a club to become any type of champion or anything. But I, I got into a club because I knew I needed to do something different, and what I was doing was wrong, and I had a bit of cop on to know that. And when you left, what, what age were you? Fourteen when you decided school wasn't right for you, Kelly? Yeah, I was, I was young enough. I was fourteen, and that was it. Like guys had enough of school, and school had had enough of me, basically. And when was the moment when you decided boxing would be your way to go? When was that moment? Uh, I, I think I was about 14 or 15 when I decided that that, that was the way to go. But I had always, like, there's boxing clubs on every corner in the inner city. I'm always saying that I'm like a broken record. <laughs> but there genuinely is. Like, there's, you don't see yacht clubs and uh, hockey clubs and equestrians or anything like that. It's all boxing, you know, and... That's, I, I just wanted to I just wanted to get into sport and that was the real main sport that was around and, and it's cheap and it's cheerful and a lot of the time if you didn't even have the the subs to pay you wouldn't have to pay you know like they, mm. they give you a helping hand really and I think out of all the sports that there is out there coming from an area that I come from and the background I come from boxing I feel has helped more people like me to not, not achieve just greatness but to achieve a life so I just think it, it, it doesn't get the credit that it, uh, that it deserves across the board, you know, for all those um, volunteers, those unpaid volunteers and boxing clubs. And of course, yourself and Katie, you're such role models for little girls, because when you first tried to get into those boxing clubs, they said, no, we don't take girls. Isn't that right? That's it, yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't let us in, yeah. So it was a bit of a hard time trying to get in but we got there eventually and then there was no getting us out once we got in that was it there was no getting us out and for little girls now who would like to follow you what advice would you give them Kelly to just follow their dreams what would you say to them yeah exactly follow your dream and that like look not everything is about about becoming a champion of anything but it's about taking part as well you know and about being a part of something that's bigger than just sport you know boxing has given me a family outside of my actual family and we're going to have you're going to have bad days there's going to be days where you're not necessarily happy and probably not in love with the sport but to just keep it going keep it going because you never know what's around the corner really and as a sports ambassador now for Dublin City Council would you advise younger people who maybe are a bit lost right now in their lives to do some kind of sport any sport, it doesn't have to be boxing, but any mm. sport, just to get into it. It's, look, it doesn't even have to be sport, like just to get into some kind of activity because it will just make you feel good. Sure, you know it yourself. Like, mm. you just, like there's no one who's ever done a walk or a cycle or went to a, an exercise class and then said, Oh, 
I feel awful after that. You always feel good after it, you know, because it just releases those hormones in your body that makes you feel good. So, yeah, I'd love to see a lot more people getting into it and picking up the good, healthy habits. And that's what me and me and Ellen are going to try and promote uh, uh, across across the city. And you're enjoying married life? Loving it. I, <laughs> I don't know about Mandy, though, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because you met through boxing as well, didn't you, Kelly? Yeah, yeah. So she's a great understanding of it, you know. So she has a very, very good understanding of what it is that I do. And she helps me. To be honest with you, without Mandy, it would be, all of this probably wouldn't be possible, you know, because she, she keeps me going in the dark days as well. Before I let you go, obviously the Irish Athletic Boxing Association, the culture in it, given Bernard Dunn's resignation, what's your feeling about that? You know, I, I miss Bernard and it's such a pity like of everything that's going on at the moment and the only real people who are who is anything is you know, it's it's the boxers that's fallen the victim to this to all of this, you know. So I hope it gets sorted out sooner rather than later, really, because we're heading into an Olympic cycle here now next year and we don't want to be chasing our tails and we need people to be in positions that they're meant to be in to be able to let the team go forward and do what they need to do. Finally, you're only going to join five women so far who've got this freedom of Dublin. So once you get it next weekend, will you be strutting around the city saying, ah, I have the freedom of my city? I will, I will. And then I'll be coming for the Lord Mayor's role then. <laughs> You'd be fantastic. <laughs> I'm only joking. <laughs> I know. Well, look, Kelly Harrington, congratulations and thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye, Kelly. Sunday with Miriam. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.